Hi, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again, and I'm personally more excited than I've been in a while about the interview that we've got lined up for you today. Joining us is Mr. Duncan Bartlett, editor and journalist who specializes in Asia and more specifically Japan. His resume is incredibly impressive. He's worked for ITN, the BBC, and The Economist before embarking on his own independent career, which includes his job as chief editor for the monthly political magazine Asian Affairs. He also writes a weekly blog, Japan Story, the goal of which is to explain how Japan is perceived by the international media. In addition to journalism, he has his own public speaking training business, which focuses primarily on helping high profile Asian clientele tackle the often uncomfortable but necessary task of engaging English speaking audiences in presentations, lectures at political or business events, etc. He's worked with Mizuho, Nomura, Mitsubishi, and the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, but I'd better stop chattering. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on, Ziv. Um, I have to say, of all the extremely impressive sections in your CV, the one that maybe speaks to me the most is your role at the BBC. You were actually a presenter on their world radio channel, on one of my favorite daily programs, the World Business Report, which is, in my opinion, hands down one of, of the two or three best business shows out there. And I know this because whenever, for some reason, the BBC's website is down, which is quite rare, and I can't listen to it, I go fishing around for any reasonable alternatives. And to be perfectly honest, there just doesn't seem to be anything out there that's even as remotely comprehensive, objective, or just plain interesting. So I think before we actually start talking about any current issues, I'd really love to hear a bit about your own personal history. Could you maybe give us a brief rundown on your own career journey, how it started, progressed, where you are now? Sure. Well, thank you very much for those kind words about uh, World Business Report. I worked on that program under an editor called Martin Weber for 15 years, uh, and I think it was his vision of the program that it would be accessible and highly international. So I'm glad that it was something that you enjoyed listening to. Um, I wanted to be a journalist when I was 12 years old, actually. It was my dream. I thought it was a very glamorous job, and parts of it are actually fairly glamorous. Um, I had my first job on a local newspaper in the summer holiday when I was 16 years old, and I followed the reporters around. I went to visit a car crash. I remember doing that. At university, I did English literature, and then I was lucky because very soon after I left uh, university, I got my first job as a journalist on a local newspaper at the age of 21. And actually, my job was to write about real estate, oh. which at the time... <laughs> I thought was a great disappointment. <laughs> I was expecting that I was going to be given the political news, but actually I had to write about the properties that were for sale. It was good discipline, actually. Um, I did that for about a year, and then I switched to writing about music. I joined a magazine. I came to London. I joined a radio station, and then I moved into television. So I think then um, in the year 2000, I joined the BBC. And my first love, I suppose, is radio. As the broadcasting I've done, probably about two-thirds of it has been for radio and about a third for television. Right. And these days, Japan, why, why Japan specifically? What is it about Japan that particularly interests you or you find focus-worthy? Well, somebody said to me, there's something in the air. And I think that was a rather good way of explaining why he felt passionate about Japan. There's just something about it that's particularly interesting and intriguing. And in many ways, the more you learn about Japan the more interesting it becomes. Uh, so in 1999, when I was interviewed for the BBC, 
uh, they asked me what was wrong with Japan. Now, at that time, I gave an answer about the uh, real estate bubble bursting and uh, the uh, stagflation and the uh, problems within the economy. But actually, I think they should have also asked me what was right about Japan, because there were many good things about the Japanese economy in 1999. It was the second biggest economy in the world. It wasn't growing. It was uh, in, a, in, a, in a period of uh, a, a flat growth or recession. Of course, it has got social problems. But, I mean, I ask you this, as you're in real estate, have you ever seen a slum in Japan? If we went on a tour of Asia, we'd see many slums. We'd see them in India, we'd see them in Pakistan, we'd see them in the Philippines, we'd see them in China, but not here in Japan. Absolutely. That's um, actually one of the first things that we tell many of our customers when they um, inquire as to um, what a problem tenant is in Japan. And we we have to answer and we're pleased to answer that even at the uh, lowest at the lowest income levels and at the um, probably the grittiest neighborhoods, all you're really dealing with is just blue collar, hardworking people. There's no crime, drug labs, squatters. You don't even have to um, forcibly evict anyone. At worst, you send them a letter and off they go. So, of all the various topics that you cover in your blogs, and folks, you really should subscribe to Japan Story. I mean, the extent of the topic Duncan's covers there and the depth to which he delves into is simply phenomenal. Which topics are the ones that you find yourself going back to again and again, and why? Well, there are three that I return to a lot. I'm fascinated by Shinzo Abe and how he represents Japan internationally. Um, he's always traveling around, isn't he, to international meetings. He was in China very recently. It's such a different approach to the previous system of boring, forgettable prime ministers. Uh, and for journalists, Mr. Abe makes Japan's story easier to tell because he's got quite a strong personality. Uh, and, of course, there wasn't bad news about him over the uh, question of uh, whether there'd been a cover-up on a land deal earlier on this year. But aside from uh, Shinzo Abe and the politics, I'm also very interested in Japan's relationship with China, that's one of the stories I look at a lot. And also gender relations, womenomics. I've t touched on that subject in this week's blog. How do men and women relate to each other in Japan? And how does that feel different to gender relations in, in other countries? Okay, so there are at least a few topics there that we've also touched upon briefly here in the podcast. And I'd lo love to dig deeper into some of these with you in a bit. But firstly, maybe just a general impression you seem to be quite positive, and you've mentioned this uh, previously as well, optimistic even, in your view on many things related to Japan's socio-economic climate. Just to summarize a few of these, you made the point that gender inequality in Japan, or what the rest of the world perceives as gender inequality, isn't necessarily all it's made out to be. You've commented that tensions between Japan and China are lessening, and that Japan's elderly, their participation in the workforce is... Just to paraphrase from your blog, a positive force for good, basically, and a global example of a practical and healthy solution to the rapidly aging societies in the developed world. Now, without, again, deeply breaking down any of these, which I think will probably take us down a rabbit hole that will fill up more than a single episode of this podcast, where do you get this optimism? Is it 100% authentic, or are you maybe just playing devil's advocate a little bit to the um, sensationalist and overdramatic tendency of international media? as far as it comes to Japan? Well, I should say, first of all, that I'm independent now. I no longer work for the BBC or the Japanese government or anybody else like that. That blog is my own personal blog, and I'm not paid to do it. So it's not propaganda paid for by 
any organization or government. But the goal of my blog is to highlight the issues that the international media are covering in terms of Japan. And inevitably, journalists tend to pick up on the bad news, the problems. It's part of their role. Um, and my experience is that a lot of the time, what the media sees as problems for Japan don't particularly trouble ordinary Japanese people going about their day-to-day -day lives. So most women who work in offices, OLs, don't worry too much that there's not enough women on the board, for example. Now, I may, I may be making a generalization here, and I know that the, uh, the question of womenomics has been hotly debated, but I don't hear it as something that people feel is a great restriction on them. And also, most people don't worry up, wake up in the middle of the night uh, worrying about reform of the Constitution. That's a huge political issue. The referendum will probably come while Shinzo Abe is prime minister and people in other countries will have opinions about that. But it's not something you hear people talking about every day. My optimism, I think, is drawn from the positive and hardworking spirit of the Japanese people I meet. And I try to analyze the international news coverage of Japan within that context. Okay, so within that context, I'm interested to hear... How do you see the relationship between China and Japan, for instance? It's something you've been writing a, uh, about a lot recently. A lot of the media are saying that it's a very much improved relationship. Do you agree with that? I do. I do think it's an improved relationship at a number of levels. Uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Abe was in China recently, and I think that was a very successful visit to Beijing, including some fruitful talks with President Xi. Five years ago, it had been very, very difficult to imagine that the Prime Minister of Japan would ever be warmly welcomed in China, so that's a big change. Um, you know, years ago, the Chinese media portrayed Mr. Abe as a revisionist who made light of Japan's invasion and occupation of China and other Asian countries. Uh, the Chinese were very scathing about the way he talked about history, called him a nationalist. He is a nationalist, but he's also an internationalist. And they derided uh, Shinzo Abe for presiding over a stagnant economy while the Chinese economy was booming. So aside from the politics, I think you can also see a lot of people-to-people -people interaction at the moment between the Chinese and the Japanese. There are a record number of Chinese tourists in Japan, a million coming each year now. I'll just to give you one example, I was in uh, Yokohama recently and I went to Chinatown there, and every day those Chinese restaurants in Yokohama, Chinatown, lay out buffets for hundreds of Chinese tourists who choose to visit this little outpost of their country during their brief holidays in Japan. So the dishes like mapo dolfu and grilled chestnuts, uh, the Chinese shopkeepers speak to them in their local language. But of course, they have many Japanese customers too, and the occasional Brit, the odd Australian go down there. Um, so it's all good for business. And it's not just Yokohama that's attracting Chinese tourists within Japan. Big shopping centers of Tokyo and Osaka, very popular especially for those luxury branded goods, children's clothes, cosmetics, things like that. Um, when I was walking through Shinsaibashi in Osaka earlier this year, um, it seemed as though everybody was speaking Chinese. And many Chinese people also like to get their pictures taken near the ancient temples in Kyoto. And I've heard about uh, bus trips going up to Hokkaido full of uh, Japanese uh, Chinese people. And I've also heard about uh, the... Um, the many visits to Hokkaido taken by Chinese visitors to try to see places that they've seen on television. So 
a record number of Chinese visitors enjoying Japan's spirit of hospitality or motonashi. I even saw a couple posing in their wedding outfits for photographs outside the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. <laughs> Something of an irony, given the uh, past conflict between the countries. Mm, definitely. And I think Japan's struggling with, um, well, Chinese visitors specifically, but with many kinds of tourists these days, which is um, probably something that they'll have to work out one way or the other, um, just heading into the 2020 Olympics. But they're definitely not the first uh, nor the last country to have to deal with that. Okay, so let's get into the uh, Asian Affairs magazine a little bit. Um, how's that relationship, the Japanese-Chinese relationship seen in the rest of Asia? Well, for every country in Asia, the big debate politically is how they relate to China. Is China their friend? Of course, it says it's friendly. It makes friendly noises at international meetings and it offers to take the lead. But is it in fact seeking to assert its position and turn all the other countries into vassals of China? I mean, another point here is that China and Japan are Asia's two largest economies. They both invest heavily in the rest of the region. And so we've recently heard about China and Japan working together to build a new high-speed railway in Thailand. Not surprisingly, Thailand wants China and Japan to maintain a constructive business relationship. And I would say that's true for much of the rest of Asia too, leaving aside the ideological differences. And there are big differences. Uh, Chinese-Japanese business partnerships are good for Asia and they're good for the world. And I think that helps to explain why South Korea is still so keen to be part of various trilateral meetings with China and Japan. South Korea, yes, it harbors some resentment and rivalry towards Japan relating to uh, events in the 20th century. That still sours their relationship. But in terms of economics, there's a great advantage to South Korea in building strong, mutually beneficial relationships, both with China and with Japan, and indeed it does so. Um, China has enjoyed very strong economic growth for more than a decade. It's the largest economy in Asia. But, of course, Japan is actually richer than China. If you take GDP per capita, which is a fairly crude way of comparing standards of living by dividing up the value of the country's economic wealth by its population, you'll see that uh, China has a GDP per head of about $9,000, while Japan comes in at $38,000 a head, as the numbers from the World Bank. So, by that standard, Japan is very rich, and generally speaking, the Japanese are liked and trusted in Asia. And they've built trust through their international business network over many decades. People in Asia mainly admire Japan. They regard it as an inspiring example of a clean, well-ordered Asian society. Mm. And as for the, um, the current uh, trade war that's brewing, we're actually fully blown now between China and the U.S., do you think that's also helped to push Japan and China closer together? I go to a meeting about that at London School of Economics this afternoon. Um, the common view is that the Chinese economy is slowing down, its stock market's had a bad year, the trade war in the U.S. is causing problems, so that's why it's reaching out to Japan and trying to be friendly. I think that rather overlooks the enormous size of the Chinese economy and its current rate of growth. The official figures suggest that China's economy is still growing at more than 6% annually, and it's that domestic market that's growing, that's driving that growth. So the trade war with America is not impacting that situation in such a significant way. Of course, as I said before, 
close business links between China and Japan benefit both countries. And you can see the deep links between them when you look at the stock markets. So in October, the stock market in Shanghai lost about 7%, and the Nikkei in Japan was down about 8%. So certainly events in China influence what happens to Japanese businesses. And I always think it's rather surprising, isn't it, that uh, uh, news of a small slowdown in China might uh, affect the shares of you know, a ceramics company in Kyoto. But in an inter interconnected world, uh, it does. Absolutely. And um, China is also Japan's uh, biggest trade partner uh, by a long shot. So do you think Abe is taking a risk politically by sending these friendly signals to China, even inviting uh, President Xi to Tokyo next year to meet the emperor? Yes, and China, of course, has been sending friendly signals to Japan, too. Mm. Well, I think there are people who would say it's a risk. I was at a meeting with some politically conservative people in Tokyo recently, and they said it leaves Japan vulnerable to being manipulated by China. So they say, look, the ideology of China, one-party system, communist-led so Chinese socialism, is profoundly different uh, to that in Japan. Um, so Mr. Abe has spoken... Has Mr. Abe has spoken of the Sino-Japanese relationship returning to normal. It seems to me that for Japan, it seems to me that for Japan, normality often means overlooking the ideological differences with China, and that leaves the way open to trade. And during that recent trip to China, Mr. Abe was accompanied by a delegation of nearly a thousand executives. So we talked, didn't we, about the uh, railway in Thailand, those third country projects. And there were others, too, that were talked about, an oil refinery in Kazakhstan, a solar power facility in the United Arab Emirates. Um, and those are the sort of big ambitious schemes that are appealing to Japanese construction firms, banks, trading houses. But there's another point here, isn't there, that China and Japan mark the 40th anniversary of their signing of a treat and peace friendship agreement. They are rivals, but are they enemies? Has anybody been killed in a war between them in the last 40 years? I don't think so. China says that peace is in its DNA, and trusting China is a challenge. But as you pointed out early, earlier, I'm an optimist. So um, I take on trust to some extent uh, the, uh, the, the Chinese uh, message that they want to do business and they want to be involved with Japan on big infrastructure projects. Um, I think we should go out to a Chinese restaurant uh, in uh, Fukuoka and perhaps we should uh, talk about politics more over dim sum and jasmine tea. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, there's an amazing place here. Um, gyoza, I think they call them gyozu, gyozu in uh, China that you would absolutely die for. Um, okay, I think, look, we've taken enough of your time uh, for one time, uh, Duncan, but um, if you wouldn't mind, I'd definitely love to have you um, return to the uh, podcast. Uh, we've got just so many topics to cover. Um, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure having you with us. I look forward to uh, being a uh, regular contributor to your podcast. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. Folks, um, uh, do tune in to um, the podcast uh, next week. We're going to have some more exciting content for you. And we're going to link in the show notes, we're going to link to um, the Japan Story blog and to Duncan's profile. Um, definitely get in there, subscribe. You will not regret this. We'd love it if you could leave any comments or questions to myself or to Duncan on the YouTube channels, the social media channels where you may have found this blog. 
And if you've got a moment, we would really love it if you could leave us a rating on the Google Play Store, the uh, iTunes Store, or wherever you might have found us. That's it from us for this week. And until next week, we wish you, as always, happy investing. Music